We are reading this evening from Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. Uh, it is page uh, 1112 in the Church Bible. Page 1112. Acts 16 and verse 16. We're cutting in here to the story of Paul's ministry in the city of uh, Philippi uh, and um, reading of the conversion of the Roman jailer. Romans uh, chapter 16 and verse 16 and we read first of all of the conversion of the slave girl. Once when we were going to the place of prayer We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar. By advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, They were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open, and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized, 
the jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He and his household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, Release those men. The jailer told Paul, The magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, They beat us publicly, without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and encouraged them. Then they left. Well, let's turn to Acts chapter 16. And uh, tonight uh, we want to look for a short time at verses 30 and 31 and to remind ourselves uh, how this Roman jailer uh, was saved uh, and to learn from that uh, how people uh, are saved uh, today. And I trust that uh, the Lord will stir in us a desire uh, for the salvation uh, of other people. This uh, chapter, chapter 16, uh, records uh, or begins to record the missionary labours of Paul um, in his second missionary uh, journey. And um, particularly uh, in this 16th chapter, focusing on the city of Philippi. I always like to get a date and a time and a place. So the date is about AD 48 or AD 49. Uh, Philippi, as the place, is a leading city. It's a key centre of population and of commerce and of culture and of politics. It's part of northern Greece, so part of the old Greek empire. Uh, it is now under Roman rule um, and it is proud of its Roman heritage. Um, it enjoys Roman culture and in fact it has the liberties and privileges of Roman citizenship. So many people there would have been Roman citizens. It has been described as a little Rome far from home. So if you couldn't live in Rome, a very good alternative would be to live in Philippi. Because many of the privileges, many of the experiences that you could have had in Rome, uh, probably without the attendant costs, you could have in Philippi. Now Paul comes there as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a minister of the gospel. He's a missionary of the New Testament church. And he has the added 
uh, and exceptional distinction or honour of being an apostle. One of that unique body of men that Christ commissioned and called and sent forth uh, to um, preach the gospel uh, in the first century and also to record the gospel for posterity in the scriptures. Now here in Acts chapter 16, uh, Luke is with Paul in Philippi. Luke's an historian. He's a good friend of Paul's. He's a doctor, perhaps even Paul's personal physician. Um, And uh, he travels with Paul and he tells us about three people who are converted in this city. And they become the foundation members of this church at Philippi. Uh, And there are two women and one man. Uh, And each conversion is unique. And that reminds you and me that uh, conversion uh, is a common experience. And in other words, it's an experience of all who, um, who are going to go to heaven. But it is unique to each one of us. You are a unique person. God has made you the individual you are. And he deals with you and he deals with me as sinners individually and personally. It's not a conveyor belt where we're just all produced en masse and looking alike. The first woman uh, to be converted in this city that we read of. Uh, is a woman named Lydia. And she, before her conversion, uh, is a God-fearing woman. That means she has connected herself with Jewish worship. Um, She hasn't become uh, a full-blown Jew, but she, instead of worshipping the false gods around her in Greece and in Rome, She is worshipping the God of the Bible, the God of creation, the God of the Jews, the God of of, um, Old Testament salvation. And so that's why she gathers uh, at this meeting for prayer. Obviously, there are not enough men in the city to have a synagogue. You needed at least 12 men uh, to constitute a Jewish synagogue. But there's a, a body of women uh, who adhere to the Jewish faith uh, and they meet for prayer on the Jewish Sabbath. Paul, arriving in the city, hears about this and he goes to the prayer meeting. And in the prayer meeting, he has an opportunity to preach. Very significant. Prayer and the Word going together again and producing salvation. And I cannot emphasize enough in this day and generation that we must have prayer and the ministry of the word together. Those are the two means by which God will save people. And this woman uh, becomes a believer. There's no drama, no excitement, no fuss. And she uh, is converted. Her, the Lord opens her heart, we're told, to heed the things that she heard. A bit like a flower exposed to the summer heat and it opens and it blossoms. The second conversion is a very different one. It's of a woman who's a very high profile 
in the city. Uh, she's involved in fortune telling, involved in the occult. Uh, she is uh, controlled by an evil spirit. Uh, and uh, she makes a lot of money for the men uh, who, um, who control her life and probably pay her a pittance in the process. And her conversion follows days of confrontation. We get the impression that day after day when Paul and Silas are going about their business, they're not bothering anybody. Uh, they're not wanting to be, uh, as it were, in the glare of public publicity. But this woman keeps thrusting them into the limelight by um, the things that she says uh, about them. Uh, verse 17. These men are servants of the Most High God. Notice how Satan and evil recognizes the Most High God. Okay? We're told by James uh, that um, Satan and the demons believe there is a God. And here we have an example of it. And she kept this up for many days. And finally Paul was so troubled uh, and so perturbed uh, by what she was doing, by her plight, and also by probably the uh, undue attention that she was bringing to them. He turned around and he said, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you, that's the evil spirit, to come out of her. Do you see how he's an apostle? He's the power of Christ. To command an evil spirit to come out of a woman. You and I don't have that power today. No minister is that power today. No Christian is that power today. Because these men were apostles uh, of Christ. And at that moment the spirit left her. So it's a very dramatic, a very public conversion. And it leads to uproar. And it results in Paul and Silas... Uh, being attacked uh, by the people of the city. Uh, they're accused of, being, of coming to, to destroy the city and upset the city and perturb the city um, uh, and disturb the city. And then they're flogged by the authorities. And again, this would have been a very painful, very public uh, whipping. Uh, and we should imagine these men with their backs um, lacerated by this whipping. And they're thrown into prison. And what's remarkable. And we see this again and again. In scripture and in church history. God gives grace. For the situation. We've proven that in our own lives haven't we. Our much lesser and lighter afflictions. And we're in the midst of them. And we sense a grace that comes from God. Into our lives in Christ. That sustains us and carries us along. Well, we didn't get that the day before or the week before. It comes in the moment of the affliction. And it's the same with these men here. Instead of them feeling sorry for themselves and bewailing and lamenting the pain that their bodies are in, what are these men doing? They're praying and they're singing uh, and um, they're singing Psalms, actually. It'll be, they'll be singing from the Old Testament Psalter. Um, that's the, the word that's used here, comes from that word. Uh, and they're doing that uh, in the presence of others. And notice how they're being a witness. Verse 25, other prisoners were listening to them. And God owns their testimony. 
And he vindicates their righteousness like the noonday sun. Noonday sun, you can't escape it. Okay? And the psalmist says that our righteousness will be vindicated and shown forth like the noonday sun. Well, if there's an earthquake, and it's, opened, and it's sent by God to vindicate his people, everybody sees it. And the thing that struck me as I was reading this tonight, and it never struck me before, is that the chains fell off all the prisoners. All the prisoners. Not just Paul and Silas. Now, if you were in a high security prison as a terrorist or in some other crime, and suddenly your chains fell off and the doors were flung open, what would people do? Well, they wouldn't have to do like that guy last week that up over the wall and escaped. They would just run out. But notice what it says here. They don't run out. They're constrained to stay. And who is that of? Is that because they say, well, it would be wrong for us to escape. After all, we're guilty. Uh, and we get this jailer into trouble and he'll lose his life if we escape. Is that what's going through them? No. These men, are, these men and women, whoever they are, young or old, they are constrained by God. God is over this entire situation. So these people, though they are free of their chains, they've never been more imprisoned in their lives. Because they're now imprisoned. They're prisoners not of Rome. But they're prisoners of God. And they're going to hear the gospel. They're going to hear the gospel. As one man in particular. As the jailer. As an overwhelming sense of conviction. And of a sin. And he cries out in the presence of all um, Paul can hear it and Silas can hear it and surely the other prisoners can hear it. What must I do to be saved? And if you imagine yourself in that situation and you're one of the other prisoners and you hear somebody asking that question you're going to say well, what must I do also to be saved? And you're going to listen. And so we want to note here the question the jailer asks and then the answer the jailer receives. Um, uh, and um, as he's asking this question, it's a question that's relevant to all in that prison who are captive, not to Caesar, but now to God and his word and his gospel. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Notice how the jailer asks this question. He asks it on his knees. He asks it trembling before Paul and Silas. Here's a very powerful Roman figure trembling before two gospel preachers. Before two nobodies in the eyes of the world. And you see, when God is at work, that's what happens. Even the mighty and the powerful. And those who have tremendous privilege and position and authority in this world, they're caused uh, to fall on their knees before the humblest and the lowliest 
of Christians. It's a remarkable scene. This man does not normally speak or act in this way. By background, he is almost certainly a soldier. He's been trained by Rome to be tough and to be hard and to be brutal. And in many respects, he's been trained to take no prisoners. And he's no doubt further hardened by the ravages of war and death that he's seen over the years. And now he's retired out of the army and he's looking for a cushy job to finish out the rest of his years. And so he's become a jailer. But here now, this man is taking the role and the position of a suppliant before two prisoners, pleading for his life. And why does he do so? Should he not be relieved? Should he not be filled with gratitude that he's been reserved from death by his own hand? Remember, he's about to take his life because he thought the prisoners had escaped. And uh, had that happened, Rome would have said, they were your prisoners and your responsibility, therefore, uh, that they escaped and he would have died. Why is this man terror-stricken before two Christians? Before two preachers? Well, because he knows that the events of that night are not the work of man. They're the work of God. To use the phrase that we have been thinking about this morning, he knows that God is with these men in everything they do. And so he's a man face to face with God as he stands before these men. He's face to face with his sin, with his need. This man has been as near to death and hell and as he escaped with his life as near as a person can get. He knows he's not right with God. He knows he's not ready to meet the God of creation. The God of salvation as preached and proclaimed by these two men. The God of the earthquake and the flood and the fire. He needs to be saved from sin. And righteousness and judgment. And so he cries out. What must I do. To be saved. The most important question that anybody in the world. Old or young. Rich or poor. Powerful. Or weak. Can ask. How can I be saved? How can I a sinner. Become right with a holy God. How can my conscience be cleansed of all the wrong that I've done? And perhaps many things were flowing into this man's mind. Things that he had done as a soldier. Women that he'd abused. Children that he killed. And other things that he'd done as a soldier that he ought not to have done. Now coming up before his sight. And his eyes and his life being acted out before him again. And he says, I've done this against God and I've done this against people. How can I be saved? What must I do to be saved? Isn't it a wonderful thing that God brings us face to face with ourselves? Our sin. What we've done. 
and what we've said and we can't escape and we cry out what must I do to be saved and who knows we're only the focus here is only on this one man in Luke's account but who knows what is happening in the hearts of the other prisoners only God the Holy Spirit knows let's notice then secondly the answer the jailer receives the answer the jailer receives how simple how profound and they said believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved notice they said you see the Bible talks about out of the mouth of two or three witnesses a matter is confirmed it's not just Paul saying this it's Silas saying this and so it's confirmed yes jailer says Paul yes jailer says Silas believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved This man can't undo the past. This man can't manage the future. You and I can't undo our past. And you and I cannot manage the future. We'll make as big a mess of the future by ourselves as we have of our past. And so Paul doesn't tell him well, tidy up your life. That would have been so futile. And pointless. Tidy up your life in order to earn God's salvation. Because none of us can tidy up our lives. He doesn't say to the man, give up this or take up that. And you will be saved. He doesn't say, work harder at your own religion, whatever that religion is, whatever God you've grown up to be told of, go back to that God and, and, and seek him with more devotion and you will be saved. And we must never uh, fall into that trap that is everywhere around us today of thinking that if people seek whatever God they will be saved. Paul didn't. Silas didn't believe that. Christ didn't believe that. And we mustn't preach that. There's another danger that he guards against here. He doesn't say to this man, come on now, pull yourself together. You're a big, strong man. You've been a very effective soldier. Come on, pull yourself together. Believe in yourself. Look within yourself. And you'll find strength and you'll find good and you will be saved. That's what many are told today. That's what many people are told today. Believe in yourself. Look back to what you have been and, and regain what you were. But you see, that's no good to a person. He sees their whole life flashing before them like a video and sees their sin and their wickedness. Because how can that be dealt with? That's the issue. That's the problem. 
So this man, so, so Paul and Silas say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They point him to one single individual. One way to be saved. And as we were saying last week, it's still the same today. The only one who can save is not ourselves. And whatever strength we might muster within ourselves, that will not save us. It's not whatever God we want to choose from all the plethora of gods that our world professes that will save us. No, there's one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And how much is summed up in that name? Christ, the one anointed of God. Jesus, the one who will save his people. The anointed of God who will save sinners. The Lord Jesus Christ. The one appointed of God who will save sinners. Who is the king and the ruler of all things. He's the one who will save. Put your faith in this extraordinary, unique person to be saved. That's what he's saying. That's what Silas is saying. And the verb belief, it's a command. And it's a command in the singular. That's addressed to this man as an individual. And again, we think of all the other prisoners who are sitting around there uh, and listening. And they again are being brought to focus on one person, whatever their backgrounds. One person that can save them. The Lord Jesus Christ, whom Paul and Silas know and believe in and preach. And they urge the jailer, they urge others um, also believe. Uh, in him. Got to put their trust. He's got to put his trust in Christ. Got to place himself in the hands of Christ. And we're familiar with that idea aren't we? You go into hospital. And you need some medical treatment. And you say to the doctors and nurses. I'm in your hands. I'm in your hands. I'm helpless to cure myself. I'm depending on you. And that's precisely the point that this jailer has reached and had to reach in order to be saved. Powerless to deal with his own sin. Brought face to face with the Christ. The anointed of God. The one who saves from sin. The one who is Lord over all creation. And he's told here, is hope. Here is the way. Here is salvation. And then the story continues, and we know the rest of the story. The answer the jailer receives, and then, um, if you wanted to round it off, we could say the truth the jailer embraces. The truth the jailer embraces. The question the jailer asks, what must I do? The answer the jailer receives, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The truth then, in the third place, the jailer embraces. They speak more to him, verse 32, 
the word of the Lord and to those that are in his house. And look at then how the jailer shows that he's embraced the truth because he takes them out of the prison. He takes them into his home, which probably was next door, joined to the prison, a part of the prison. And then um, he washes their wounds, these lacerations that are in in their backs, and treats them with the medicine of the day. And he sets a meal before them. And we're told he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. You see, he's laid hold of the truth. And it's evident that he has. When a person believes the gospel, when a person believes in Christ, it will be obvious. It will be obvious. There will be changes of attitude. This man has a change of attitude. There will be changes in actions. This man has a change in action. There will be a change in speech. This man has a change in speech. You see, the gospel doesn't come to us and leave us unchanged. Christ doesn't come to us and do something in us and then we just revert back to our old ways. No, we're made new. And so it will show itself in change. But as you and I pray for people, And speak the gospel into people's lives. Then we're to bring before them. This great truth. Believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. To be saved. And then we are to watch. And if they have embraced the truth. Their lives will be changed. And changed not just for a day or two. Because that's the seed that falls on the wayside, in the stony ground, and the thorny ground. But their lives will be changed in a way that is ever increasing. So they're more and more like the Lord Jesus. And that's the challenge for you and me. That's the proof that our profession of faith is real and genuine. As we change, not the way I changed last week, or last year, but the way I'm being changed today and tomorrow and next day by the word of Christ uh, as it is explained to me more and more. As the word of the Lord is spoken into my heart and my life, I've got to embrace not only the truth of the gospel believe. But the call of the gospel to be changed and to change. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and our Father in heaven, we bless you tonight for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the one anointed, the one sent from heaven the one given to this world, the name under which under heaven by which we must be saved. We thank you that Christ uh, is Jesus who takes away our sins, that he is the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who rules 
over the wind and the storm, the flood, the fire, the earthquake. And the one who is able to cause circumstances to form around a person, as he did with this jailer, so that a person comes face to face with their sin. O Lord God, thank you for the individual circumstances that you formed around each one of us in the past to bring us face to face with our sin. For you played out before us the video of our lives and we saw our wickedness. And we saw your grace. We saw your salvation in Christ. And we thank you that we were enabled by your Holy Spirit to believe into him. Lord God, we ask that we would continue to embrace the truth day by day, changed and changing, reformed and reforming. That is the call of the gospel. That's the reality of the gospel. We pray that it would be the reality in our own experience all the days of our lives that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Help us as we make this gospel known to others. And we pray that you would create in the lives of others for whom we are concerned at this time the circumstances that will bring them face to face with themselves and your salvation. In Jesus' name, Amen.